going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45 this morning. It is going to be my best effort by the strength of God to get through these, but um, these are marvelous passages, and, uh, and they are very personal. And I'll say this from now, come, you may be mad at me after this sermon, but that's okay, I'm mad at myself when I study this. <laughs> this, gets in, this gets into our souls. This is about the lack of humility to those who, with those who walk with Christ. So this is, a, this is an interesting message. Let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for allowing us, God, by your grace and mercy to worship you. Many in this room, if allowed, could stand up and confess, I would not be here if it was not for the grace of God. Our desires, controlled by our flesh and sin, would drag us away, Lord, and this would be the last place we'd want to be on a Sunday morning. But you have changed our hearts, Lord. And it is not yet I, but Christ. And so we sing that, Lord, and worship at that statement because that's something you have done, not us. But the result is we follow you now. We are your disciples. We come in behind you. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would cause us to move closely in behind you. And we would learn from your humility. That we would see this morning those ugly things in us. Those, that, that desire for pride. That desire to be known. That desire to rule. That desire to have it our way. Lord, we pray that you would reveal that to us today. And through this lesson. On the dusty roads on the way to Jerusalem where you will die, Lord. We pray that we would be on that road with you this morning. And you would teach us, you would teach us humility, gospel-driven love for Christ through your word, humility. And you would use us to glorify you based on that. So Lord, strengthen us. We thank you for all and each and every one that you have brought here, each person. Lord, you've motivated by your spirit to engage with the church today. You pray for those who could not be here. Some are pending surgeries or going through treatment. Lord, please be with them. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, the labor of self-love is a heavy one indeed. Listen to that again. The labor of self-love is a heavy one indeed. How can you hope to find inward peace? Self-love is a difficult one. We all have it. We love ourselves more than we love anyone else. It is the part of our fallen nature. And though the Lord has saved us and set us free from our sins, we still battle with this, what some call it, unredeemed humanness about us. And so Tozer was right. A love for self is a heavy one. It's heavy on us. We love ourselves. And we want everyone around us to love us like we love ourselves. Is that not true? I told you, you'll be mad at me. <laughs> when Jesus was speaking with the disciples just not too long before this, he spoke of a sermon in Matthew chapter 11 that 
we often equate to salvation. But I think it has great truth that bears on our progressive sanctification, our growth in Christ. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing more heavy and weary than love of self. It's hard to keep loving yourself, but yet we try, don't we? He goes on to say this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me And then he says this phrase, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Hmm. Why is he telling us this? Because we are not gentle. (laughs) We are not humble in heart. And so we embrace a yoke that we do not have to embrace because of our pride. Because of our lack of humility. Jesus goes on to say, you will find rest for your soul. You say, oh, Scott, isn't that for this, to be saved? Oh, certainly it is. But I'll tell you, if you've been a Christian of any length, you know your soul still needs some rest. And nothing that makes you more unrest is this undying love for self because you try to manipulate. You work so hard to get people to love you the way you want loved. You try to gain and grab all this stuff, and you're worn out. And I think that's what Jesus is after because he does not want his disciples consumed in self-love and self-promotion. Today we're going to look at the lack of humility and how it creates earthly sinful behavior. How it stimulates competition even within the church. And how it deviates us from a Christ-like servanthood. And then as you'll see in your notes we will try to really make some extensive application to this today if time allows. Number one, the lack of humility creates earthly behavior, not heavenly righteousness. The lack of humility creates earthly behavior, not heavenly righteousness. Turn to your Bibles in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, and we pick up the story from here. Remember, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem now. He is working between Ephraim and Jericho and and Bethany. He's raised Lazarus from the dead already. And he is timing his entrance on that beautiful palm, what we would call Palm Sunday, as he begins his Passion Week. But during that, he is still teaching he is still drawing people to himself. He has just given, as you remember two weeks ago, he's just giving a clear, clear description using eight future tense verbs of what's going to happen to him. And right after that, somewhere in this line of this, or this trip to Jerusalem, this discussion begins to happen. Look at verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Now clearly James and John are approaching Jesus alone. They're without the other disciples. Matthew says their mother asked for them. It's possible that this long journey that maybe mom came originally and asked and didn't get the request and so she sent the boys in later. But I think what happened here probably, this is after studying both Matthew text and Mark together, is that James and John were part of an inner circle, and they knew it. And they're actually part of a family. And so they're trying here to take advantage of that position. 
They're, they're trying to use what God has done with them to, to advance their position. It's a lack of humility here. There's selfish desires to secure a position, a privilege in the kingdom. This is their opportunity. And they think they use mom to try to get there. And so you can kind of get the idea here. There's a bit of a family working thing here going on. Mom's there. James is there. John's there. And think about this, if in fact that James and John's mother is the sister of the earthly mother of Jesus, this is a family thing. They are trying to find an inroad. You wonder why sometimes if you look at Catholic theology in the worship of Mary, it's things like this is where that came from. We're scared of Jesus, so let's get mom to do it. So we can have a greater position. But using their family connection, they try to secure this here. They try to gain something that isn't theirs. But notice in the text in verse 35, they call Jesus teacher or master. Your Bible might say it means rabbi or leader or master. And Matthew says that they bow before him. So, so they're approaching Jesus as a mighty king, though he's veiled in his humanity, but as one who is able to grant a request. They're coming to him in that way. They say to him, notice in the text, listen listen to the phrasing of this. Most translations get it very, very accurate, very much like this. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. It's quite a statement. I want you to do this for us, Jesus. Notice verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I think this is a masterful reply, right? Jesus does not answer their unknown request using his sovereign, kingly, all-knowing authority, but instead makes them ask the selfish, the lacking in humility, question themselves. I, I think what he's doing here, I think he's causing them to formalize their question so he can reveal the true nature of their heart. I think he's doing that very well. The Lord, as usual, allows people to display their own spiritual sallowness by what they, what they proclaim out of their mouth that comes from their heart. This happens all the time. You and I have done this. How many of us said things we regret? Like, when you're done, you go... Man, that was self-centered. I I love myself. That's what's came out of that. And Jesus is allowing them to do this. I I love the way he does that. He he doesn't just come out and say, what is your guy's problem? Wouldn't that be the way we would handle it? What is your problem? Are Are you mad? And he lets them bring forth this to help them see their sin as he works his way down here. Look at verse 37. And they said to him, after he says, well, what do you want me to do? They say, grant that we may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your glory. They actually use the word grant. It means to gift or to grant favor over others. Grant us favor over the rest is really what they're saying. That we may sit on your right One on your right and one on your left. Now, think about what they're asking. These seats here that they're speaking of 
are power and authority in the ancient world. So when a ruling power had people sit at his left and at his right, they were the extension of his power and authority. They would go and act what he wanted done. It was quite a statement. And it's a very lofty position to ask for. Notice they use the word one on your left, one on your right or so, right? This word one here. It's really a false humility here. They're going, look, Jesus, we know the right hand is probably the more powerful hand, but we'll leave it to you. Just put us on left or right. Whoa, what a statement. And then it says, in your glory. Now, now certainly this refers to a coming kingdom where Jesus himself will rule with an iron rod and his way will be done But remember, James and John just got off the Mount of Transfiguration with him not too long ago. And they've seen his glory. And it seems possible after seeing that, that in their flesh they're going, oh, we want a piece of this show. We we want to be a part of this. In fact, being on the Mount probably emboldened them over the rest of the disciples, knowing that um, our mom is sister to Jesus' mom, knowing that we could be the family that could maybe possibly step up further than everyone else. But Christ, he showed him his glory to prepare them for their ministry, not to embolden their pride. That's what the Mount of Transfiguration was. He wanted them to know what they had, who they were involved with. They were involved with God, and he's incarnate, but he's fully God, and his glory was on display. This would strengthen them for years and years to come, even to their death. That was the meaning and the reason for the Transfiguration. And plus, think about this. Peter's not there. <laughs> so it was James and John, Peter, Peter, James, and John, but Peter's not here in this conversation. So you go, there's some pride here. There's a lack of humility. And their request was self-motivated. And it did not err on the side of humility. See, Jesus had already warned them of this in Mark chapter 9, verse 34. As you remember, the whole discussion of who's the greatest had come up. And, and, And that argument broke out, but it is clear that they had not learned that lesson yet. And so here now Jesus is going to begin to help them realize what this is coming from. How is this coming out of their heart? That this is not the plan of God. That he does not want disciples who are full of pride. He wants his followers full of humility. And he's going to work very clearly to show that. Look at verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You don't know what you're asking, he says here. Both Matthew and Mark, when you study the text, realize that now he's talking directly to James and John. He's not talking to mom. He knows where this is coming from. Jesus knew their very self-seeking nature about them. When they use the word ask, we want to ask you something, they, they use it in an active tense, meaning they, uh, we're confident in this. When Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, he changes tenses and he uses it in, a, in what we call a middle tense, meaning, are you sure you know what you're asking? You ever have your kids come up to you and say, Dad, I want this, and you go, 
are you sure you want that? Because I don't think you understand what comes with that. that. That's the kind of theme that's going on here. In other words, Jesus is saying that this is a foolish request because you have no idea of the reality that comes with that cup and comes with that baptism. You're foolish. Verse 38b, the rest of that, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? Notice he says, are you, or, or your translation may say, can you? This is a, a negative sentence structure here, meaning he's trying to bring out the, the inability here. And I think he's really bringing out what's in that cup. I mean, we hear Jesus the night before his death wrestling with that cup. And there's a reason that, because he knows what's in there. That cup is a difficult one. When you study cup and you chase it back in the Old Testament, the cup sometimes meant a joy. There was a joy in that cup of God that was be handed to you. But more often or not, what's in that cup is judgment and suffering. That's what's in the cup. And Jesus says, look, he says, can you drink it that I drink? Can you drink what I drink? Notice that, that personal pronoun there. Right in the middle, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Very, very clearly, he is telling them that this cup has is, is got something in it that I'm not sure you know or understand. And it's in present tense, so it's, it, he's already saying, I'm already sipping from this thing, yet he's not at the cross. So that means that he, he took a cup, he's drinking out of a cup that from the foundations of the world the Trinity laid down a plan for him to step out of heaven. Now just think about that. We sing a song called that he left the air of heaven to breathe the dust of the earth or the dust of the ground. What a statement that is. That's suffering. I mean, would you like to go to heaven and then come back here? Any one of our brothers and sisters have passed away and we've had services for them and we know because their faith was in Christ alone that are in heaven right now, if you go ask them if they want to come back, they'll go, are you nuts? Our Lord in heaven for all of eternity, for, you can't put a time on this because they're not bound by time, forever has been with God in perfect worship by the angels, in perfect uh, serenity, in perfect unity with the Trinity, leaves it and comes here he's already sipping from the cup and he knows it but that's not all that's in the cup what's in the cup is God's wrath what's in the cup is his judgment his rejection there's scorn and shame in that cup and he's about to drink it nothing could compare them for what lied ahead. Jesus knows what lies ahead of him. He says, I drink this. This is a very clear statement. It's a, it's a present tense act of mean. It's I, I volitionally, I, I voluntarily am drinking this cup. I, I'm doing it right now. I'm going to do this. This is my act. I stepped out of heaven. I chose to obey the Father. I'm going to do this. And then he uses the word, he says, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized? He says, look, 
now I'm going to submit myself. I willingly stepped out of heaven, but now I'm going to submit myself to the Father's plan. And, and it's all in passive now as you get to those words on baptism. I'm going to immerse myself in the wrath of God. That's what the word baptism is. Don't get fooled by that word. It just means to be immersed. And he says, look, God himself is going to immerse me in the judgment of the believers. Wow. What a statement. I'm going to submit to the predetermined plan of God to sacrifice myself for you. Can you imagine if Genesis 22 went through their minds? Maybe later, or certainly later, as they had the Spirit of God, they could, they could start now to realize what Genesis 22 was about, why it was a display of the mercy of God, and who Isaac represented, and who the Lamb represented, and all of that. Isaiah 53 now becomes a reality to them after they receive the Holy Spirit. But this is the cup. This is the voluntary suffering that would so much overwhelm the soul of Jesus that he would cry out and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the question to them he is saying is, are you morally qualified to drink from this cup, to be baptized with this baptism? Do you think you've got it together? It's what a statement, isn't it? And you and I that are on this side of the cross, we understand fallenness, don't we? (laughs) We understand depravity. We understand sin. And we look at this and go, Lord, I can't even hold the saucer. I don't deserve any of this. But look at verse 39. This is where they're at. They do not have a spirit of God in them yet. They're still thinking kingdom before the cross. They're not straight on this yet. The reality is still to come. Verse 39, they say to him, we are able. Really? Really? We're able. I think the bond of loyalty is precious here. As they commit to a price that they don't even know. I appreciate that. And I'm moved by that. But they are speaking at this point. Don't forget, they are speaking out of self-centeredness and a lack of humility. They are doing this behind the other disciples' back. They're using family relationships to try to pull this off. They have no understanding of the cost. They seem to regard Jesus' question as a test of their moral courage. But they have little understanding. And think about this. They have little understanding of the spiritual power it's going to take for them to go through the suffering that James and John are going to go through. They don't know that yet. Now, what's amazing is Jesus does not question their evaluation of their abilities does he but instead told them that they will indeed drink his cup look at the end of verse 39 he says the cup that i drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with a baptism which which i am baptized you shall be immersed in this they i want you to hear this clearly because this is where theology can go awry in many religions here but I want you to listen to the statement they would not drink the cup and be immersed in the redemptive work that only Christ could do but they would be immersed and drink from unbelievable human suffering 
That's what Jesus is talking about. You all know this. James is the first of the apostles to die. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 say this. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. They drank. They were baptized. It was not for redemptive process or or, uh, redemptive purposes. That's only Jesus could redeem. Only his drinking and only his baptism, his immersion into uh, the cross and the wrath of God upon him could bring redemption. But they were immersed. James, uh, James' death is recorded there in Acts 12, and it says, put to death with a sword. Most people believe that he was beheaded, and that's po- quite possibly true, but there's a lot of ways you can be put to death by a sword, and I don't think any of them are fun. They drank. Their minds were different. They re- received the Holy Spirit. These men were emboldened. Acts chapter 4, they stand before the killers of Christ and say, look, we're going to do what he says to do. You can kill us. You can do whatever you want. We're following Christ and we're going to keep preaching him. That's emboldened men. John, if you want to think about him for just a moment, he says, oh, John's was easier. Oh, I think it was worse. John's banished to the island of Patmos. He's away from the church he so dearly loved. And, and, and I want to think about this. This may be the worst. And, and pastors in here, our elders, our overseers in the churches, this, this might resonate with you. He had to stand at a distance and watch apostasy take over the church. And he couldn't get to them. It's like being off on a far hill and seeing your children down there. That's why John in first and second, third, John calls them his little children often. You're looking, you're so far away, and you can see a pack of wolves pressing in on your little children. And you are too far away to get there. That's what John went through. Man, that was devastating to him. And when you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you can see his passion for his children. Pleading with them to put out apostate. Don't let it rob of the glory of Christ and the bride of Christ. And he works extra hard trying to get them to see that. That they could be able to stand on Christ alone. So James and John would sip of the cup. They would be baptized. They would be immersed in suffering and it would be bitter. But notice verse 40. He recognizes that they are going to go through these things. Not redemptive, but they are going to suffer. But verse 40, now he answers their question. He says, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Remember, they're asking for this position as a personal family favor. They're lacking humility here. So Jesus replies this way, in that he had no position to give as mere personal favors. I think that's how he responded to them. You're asking for a personal behavior? I don't have any positions for that. Those are not available. Thus your request is extremely earthy and you're thinking like men. This is what he's saying to them. He says, this is my heavenly, this is of my heavenly kingdom. 
This is, this is my Father in heaven. He says, these are the ones that he has prepared. He, ha- he has prepared these positions. It's not me who prepares them. It's my Father in heaven that prepares them. And he was going to submit the Father's plan. He was going to do it. Whether they liked it or not, he was going to stick to God's plan. And they should have. And listen, earthly thinking causes us to recreate God and get him to try to do what we want him to do. We have to be so careful of that. When you fall into sin, you will begin quickly to recreate a God that fits for you if you don't repent. And often our selfish selfish, uh, nature takes over. Look at the end of verse 40b. He says, but to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Interesting enough, it's in a perfect tense, so that tells us that God has already decided the matter. He knows who sits on his left and his right. He knows who are sheep and goats. He knows who serves from a pure heart and who doesn't. He knows all these things, doesn't he? And also, how can anyone prepare his or herself for this position. And I think Jesus is trying to bring that. Are you, are, you, are you saying you're prepared for this position? It is God himself that must prepare everyone who enters the kingdom. The word prepare means to make fit. Let me show you that term in another passage. Look at Colossians chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul is in great gratitude for the church in Colossae, prays for them without ceasing. So he says this, For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, middle of verse 9, and to ask you, ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will, not your own personal will, not, not, not your selfishness, but for the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the goal. That's what Paul prays for. We want you to know the will of God. Right? We want you to be consumed with the things of him. We want you to believe his word, not your own. That's the battle that we go through. Notice verse 11. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the obtaining of all steadfast and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified, literally made you fit to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. So these men could not make themselves prepared for this. It is God who makes us fit to serve. Point number two, the lack of humility creates sinful competition. The lack of humility creates sinful competition. Look at verse 41 with me. Hear this. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Now, the text doesn't tell us how the ten heard they were possibly seeing James and John on their knees pleading for something from Jesus and maybe said, uh, that's not good. <laughs> They're after something. And it seems that some kind of cross-examination takes place, right? Possibly tempers flare. And, and this, is what, this is what lack of humility does. When you get two people who, or a bunch of people who are not going to humble themselves, you get them together and pretty soon tempers flare, separation happens, church splits go on. I mean, all kinds of stuff goes. Marriages end. I mean, just all kinds of things happen. 
See, what happens is indignation. And this is what happens with the 10. This, this means a strong resentment. They strongly resented what James and John were doing. And let's be honest, James and John were probably doing what they wished they could have, but they didn't have their mommies there. See, this is all exposing lack of humility. Lack of concern for others. When Christ set Peter, James, and John apart, there was no indignation. When he took them and said, we're going to the Mount Sinai, and you're, I mean, uh, um, the Mount of Transfiguration, and you're going to see my glory, there was no indignation because, that, because Christ did it. And that's the example. But when we try to separate ourselves, sin floods in, pride takes over, and all kinds of problems come with it. It's disastrous. But look what Jesus does. Here's the answer, verse 42. Calling them to himself. Calling them to himself. Certainly they were nearby. This is a location thing, I think. But the way to end self-promotion, the way to end pride, the way to stop this lack of humility that's in our life is go to Jesus. <laughs> Amen? I mean, this is what happens. This is what's going to end all this. And Jesus acts. He acts to end this humility. He acts to, la- to stop the lack of unity that's happening among his disciples. And I think it's such a beautiful thing to be reminded that when we have struggles, whether it's in our marriages, in our homes, in our church, uh, in our relationships in some way, if we would just stop and go to Jesus, he breaks our lack of humility. He breaks down our lack of unity. We go to him. Ten were offended. But all of them needed this lesson that Jesus was going to teach. Notice in the rest of 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, the nations, ethnos is the word, lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. So Jesus is to use an obvious understanding that the disciples had of the world. They understood the world's view and goal of greatness in order to contrast the teaching of true greatness, true spiritual greatness. That's what he's going to do here. Jesus was not in awe of the earthly nations. He didn't come and say, boy, Rome, you've really done well with the place. He wasn't in awe of them. He wasn't in awe of their quest for power and authority. Listen, he knew the eternal damnation that was coming to the authorities and powers of the world. He knew they would stand in judgment before him. And he certainly knew how easy it is to get taken away with power, with authority. He knew us as humans. He knew our desires. And he also knew he would overthrow these nations. And he wanted his disciples not to get caught up in this. And so notice he uses some terms, lording over, exercising authority over them in verse 42. These are, these are massive terms. They, they mean complete domination over their subjects because that's what James and John were asking for. Left hand and right hand were complete domination. And so he brings it up and says, this is what the nations want. 
The word picture from the original language draws a scene that is very vivid. It's the scene of one having a boot on the neck of its enemy. You will do what I tell you to do. He chose some very, very strong words for his followers to hear. I told you you wouldn't like this sermon. Because he's talking to us. Some of you, myself included, at times, want to put our boot on somebody's neck. It's disgusting to God. It's not what God's after. He's after men and women, boys and girls, who will bow their knee. This is not the image of a true shepherd, a Christ. It is not the image he wanted his disciples to have any part of. He was the true shepherd. He was the one who laid his life down for the one who had the boot on the neck. Completely opposite. That's humility. Third thought. Lack of humility is corrected through Christ-like servant leadership. Look at verse 43 with me. I love this opening phrase here. But it is not this way among you. Hmm. Praise the Lord, huh? Notice the word but there. It is a a verse of conjunction. He's linking contrasting thoughts here. He's contrasting the lording over of the world with the servant leadership of Christ's followers. He said this is not, this is, present tense, this is not the way among you. It's present tense so that it means there is the, you have the ability right now. This isn't the way it is. You have the ability right now. I'm standing here. I'm with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. For, for here on out, I will be with you. And I love this passage. When I started tearing this apart, I thought, Lord, you are always with me. I don't have to lord things. I don't have to always have my way. I don't have to put the, my boot on the neck of people. I can trust you. You're with me. But the reason why we exercise pride and arrogance is because we don't believe he's with us at times. And we've got to solve problems ourselves. It's hard, isn't it? This is why some of your relationships have ended. It's why it's difficult. I know this is hard. I told you you'd be mad at me. Because I look at this and go... I know why I've had difficulties in the past because I didn't trust God. And you're left to your own abilities. And this life is difficult. People are complex. Sin has twisted our minds and our hearts. And if you want to deal with people outside of of Christ and outside of God's strength, you will have tremendous trouble. And we have it, don't we? And I love this phrase because Jesus says, this is, this is not this way among you. You have me. You have the one who just gave you eight future tense verbs of what I'm going to do for you. Trust me. Trust me. Into verse 43, he says, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be a servant. It's fascinating, isn't it? When Jesus spoke about the world and its lording pride, he uses plurals. He goes, this is the way they are, right? 
He says this is a collective way they are. He uses plurals when he speaks of them lording over. But as soon as he turns to this instruction, he goes to singulars because he's talking about each and every one of them. And this is a very important point. We collectively don't first become humble. We individually humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We humble ourselves because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us as individual believers in this room, in this church that make up Riverbend Community Church, then God puts us together into a corporate setting called Riverbend Community Church and then things really get good. When we try to corporately make ourselves humble it doesn't work when we individually bow our knee to Jesus Christ come to church gather with the saints whether Wednesday or prayer meeting or Bible study or some class or corporately here on Sunday mornings when we individually humble ourselves now now we reflect who the bride of Christ and that's what he's after I'm so grateful Brian taught me languages so many years ago because I look at this stuff and I go, oh Lord, well you use plurals for the nations and you use singular for me. That's why this message gets right to each and every one of us because he's talking to us. You want to be great in Christ's kingdom? Be a servant of all. Look at verse 44. He gives you the formula here. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. Uses the word protos, means first place or chief. But here's the idea what he's trying to do a, a truly righteous desire for a holy position. Do you truly have a, a righteous, Christ honoring, God honoring desire for a holy position with God in heaven? Meaning being there with him, serving him? Then he says, You must do this. So he gives you this the way to do it be a servant. And then, what's amazing is not just be a servant to anyone whom you please. Oh, no. Be a servant to all. You mean that guy? Oh, Lord. Who do you not want to serve right now? What comes in your mind? Anybody? You thinking of somebody? Somebody who stole your money? ripped you off, mistreated you. I don't know what to tell you, folks. That's what I had to deal with all week. Be a servant of all. That's his solution. You want a, you want a holy, righteous, desired position in heaven? Be a servant. And you can't be a servant unless you've been redeemed by Christ. And if you're redeemed by Christ, don't just be a servant, be a servant to everyone. How many people sit within your circle of 10, 12 feet and you don't know their name? You don't know their background. You didn't even say hi to them when you sat down. It's intense, isn't it? You want to follow Christ? It means a death of yourself. That's what it means. Today we sell a Christianity of, yeah, follow Christ, get more. Where is that in the Bible? It's death to self. That's what it is, over. You want to have joy and victory? Death to self. And I teach myself this over and over. 
We're all battling with this. See, he enlarges the scope of service beyond our comfort zone, and I love that he does that, and I hate that he does it. All. All. See, Jesus opposes man-centered thinking with self-sacrificial instruction. That's how he opposes it. He opposes it with self-sacrificial instruction. Not for salvation, not for redemption, but that is the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. By the way, these words service are the word for deacon, for the diaconate. Ministers of mercy through serving is the idea here. This is what Jesus is using. But notice verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the justification for Christ's command here to these disciples and to us. Because even the God-man, the Messianic King himself, was not excluded from the instruction. In fact, Jesus himself was the highest example of the instruction. Jesus is the example of the servant of God. That's what the Isaiah Isaiah is about my servant will come to you Philippians chapter 2 have this attitude as in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men being found in the appearance of man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of the death even the death of a cross for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow he is our ultimate example And so he does not leave that out. Colossians 1 says that because he did all these things, God has made him first place, given him first place in everything. But notice in verse 45, he came. He came. That marks this voluntary action on our behalf. He voluntarily came to be a very real sense of servant because of our sin. His servanthood and his obedience drove him to the cross. Drove him to the cross. His incarnation was a submitting act to the Father, his master. And so he made him, Colossians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He made him to be that. That's why he was a slave. Slaves don't say, well, I don't want to do that. (laughs) No, the Father said, you will be sin for them. He said, yes, Father. I'll lay my life down for them. You judge me like I committed their sin. Man, you want to talk about fairness that's going on in this world? Everything's got to be fair now, right? Everybody's got a social issue going on now. Match it to that. There's nothing fair that went on for Jesus it says, but to serve, that was Jesus' target. And the bullseye was his death. <laughs> he came to serve. His target is service, and the bullseye is his death. That's the greatest service Jesus has ever done for us, is his death. Notice he gave. It's, it's a great word, didomai. It's used in a lot of different ways, but here it's the supreme gift. And then he says it's a ransom. You all know what a ransom is, right? You've, you've watched movies. This, this is beyond what you think of in a movie. This is paying the ultimate price for a prisoner or a captive. 
not just giving some dollar figure in order to gain some release. That's what most religions are about. This is life for many. A willingness to die. The word many is an interesting word, isn't it? He doesn't use the word all there, does he? It is a contrast between one life of the Redeemer and many that will be redeemed. He will ransom his life, one life, for many. It's also uh, an interesting contrast to the word all that he uses earlier to, to be a servant to all. But here it's a picture of the great multitudes of God's elect who have received this gracious act from this great servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. God came to save his elect. He knows who are his. He's not God if he doesn't. And people want to fight this all the time. I don't understand. Why do you want a God who doesn't know who's are his? And, and, and Emil said it so good on Wednesday night a couple of weeks ago. He said, yeah, he knew the sheep was lost because he already knew it was his. So he went out and got it. So he suffers and ransomed for us, for many. What an amazing, amazing thought. I'm running out of time, but I put some points down in your notes here. And I want to move through rather quickly, but things I want you to think about this week. Well, what, is humil- what humility is not? Because I don't want you to go and say, oh Lord, many of you probably, like me, as you've heard this, and I studied it all week, I thought, God, I want to be more humble. <laughs> I don't want to be someone who is, you know, I need, I need, you know, I want to be humble. <laughs> so we began to, Think about a few things. Did a lot of reading. Stole most of this from all kinds of people thinking through this. Here's some summations of some of these thoughts. Humility is not measured by sadness. This is what humility is not. Humility is not measured by sadness. The monks thought this. (laughs) Well, we won't get married. We'll live a solitary life. Some of them lived on a pole. They died and went to hell. They're sad, miserable people. Humility is not measured by sadness. In fact, humility should be understood from the joy that we have in it. There is a great joy of putting others first. There's a great joy of being a servant of all. I mean, sometimes when I think about this, you know, you're in a potluck line. No, you go. No, no, you go. No, you go. No, you go. No. Nobody gets to eat. That's just a simple thing, but, but we're thinking of each other. I think I'd like to be God. Finally, I'll say, well, you just go, you know. Thinking of one another. And there's joy in that. Oh, moms and dads, do you remember when your children were little and they opened that present, how much joy you had? They're ecstatic and can't wait to get outside and play with that or do whatever it was. See, true humility has joy. Has joy. Some of the most humble people I know are they laugh, and they're so fun to be with. One of those is Paul Anthus. And you know we, we, we love that man and his role in Compassion for Congo. When you go with Paul, he laughs. He is, he, he's one of the most humble men I've ever been around, and he has such joy. Psalm 34.2 says, My soul will make boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Humility, true humility has joy. Humility is not timidity or fear or anxiety. 
Look, anxiety is often related to our pride. We won't trust God, so we fret, worry ourselves to death. Have you ever connected anxiety to pride? The world ain't going to connect that, I promise you. But if you examine it, most often you will find that your anxiety is connected to your pride and your self-righteousness and your anger with God that he hasn't acted the way you wanted him to act. And so you begin to fall into deep, spiraling depressions. Listen to what the book of Isaiah says. Wednesday I said, the book of Isaiah teaches you the greatness of God uh, uh, as we were getting ready to go into Exodus. But listen to Isaiah 51, 12 through 13. I, even I, am he who comforts you. You are that, uh, excuse me, you are, who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass? We're so afraid of men, aren't we? So afraid of people. What do they think? Do they like me? Do they like what I wore? Verse 13, that you have forgotten the Lord your maker. So when I'm fearful or anxiety about somebody or something that's happening, I've forgotten the Lord my maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of your oppressor. Do you want to live that way? I don't. See, humility does not lack passion. Not everyone's like me, thank the Lord. But if you're truly a believer in Christ and you believe he saved you, there should be some kind of humble, passionate reaction to his grace. Tell our young guys, you want to preach? There better be a fire in your belly. Not a fire that you kind of conjure up in some way but your passion for christ is is it's insatiable right it's you just love him you love his word you want to tell people about it and not everybody gets to do this job god has you doing different jobs than i do because i can't do those so he sent you to do that job and he sent me to do mine but you should have a passion so humility doesn't mean this passionless gray motionless relationship you have passion for Jesus. I hope we do. I love to hear you sing. I told Gina as we were sitting there, I said, I'd love to hear him sing. I love to hear God's people that assemble at Riverbend Community Church sing. Because there's passion coming out of them. They're preaching. Hebrews chapter 3 says, We hold fast our confidence and our boast of our hope is affirmed to the end. Better be some passion. So humility is not sadness. It's not timidity and fear and anxiety. It's not a lack of passion. Five, humility validates our progression and sanctification. And humility trusts in the province of God. You know the passage, James chapter four, and it says, today and tomorrow we'll go to such a city and do this and spend our life there, engage in business. And then James says, and yet we do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just like a vapor. It vanishes away. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do so with this or that. True humility trusts in the providence of God. So if we get there, wow, God, thanks. If we didn't get there, mm, thanks, God. <laughs> you had a different plan. And from us goal-driven people, isn't that hard? Very hard. Life isn't going the way I 
scripted it out. See, true humility says, God, this is not what I foresaw, but, but you are sovereign. You saved me. You could have let me go to hell. I accept it. That's what true humility does. It accepts what God has for us. Humility bows under God's sovereignty and providential reign in our life. And it not only accepts it, now this is the hurdle here, it appreciates it. That's a little different, isn't it? Accept, now worship. I thank you for the illness you gave me, God. I would not pray like I do. I thank you for the person you put into my life that can be attention at times. It's teaching me to walk with you. I mean, think about this. That, think about humility in that way. B, uh, humility recognizes gifts from God. Paul, dealing with a very selfish church, in 1 Corinthians 4, 6-8, says that no one of you will become arrogant in, in, in behalf of one against another. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings with us. <laughs> so humility recognizes everything's from a gift from God. Humility recognizes, wow, God, on this earth, I may not ever have much. But I'll rule and reign with Jesus someday. And he's building a place for me. He's been working on it for a long time. And it ought to be pretty good. And so, Lord, I accept what you've given me. So humility recognizes everything, good and difficult things, or little and a lot. It recognizes that's from God. Everything good comes from the Father of James 1.17. It recognizes that. That's, that's what humility does. This is what you've given. Whatever talents, whatever intellect, whatever skills, gifts, looks, heritage, possessions, um, influence, whatever God has, put away the pride of that and accept what God has given you, whatever he has chosen. See, humility worships over God's electoral love. Humility worships over God's electoral love. You want to be humbled? Look at the doctrines of grace. And always start with the first one, depravity, total depravity. Most people don't get that. So the doctrines of grace are difficult because when you study the doctrine of depravity, you can't but worship God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that not many of you were wise according to flesh, not, not many mighty, not many noble. That pretty much takes in this crowd. That was funny. <laughs> but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I mean, think about all the philosophers and these people that have gone down before us and still alive today thinking that they can figure out how life began and reject God and throw him out of every circumstance that there possibly could be for scientific evidence or whatever it is. They're fools, the Bible says, and he chose us, <laughs> the weak-minded, apparently, to be his prized possession. He's chosen us to put to shame those things and, and it goes on to say, so that man, no man may boast before God, oh, well, I'm here because I, I, I outsmarted the rest of them. 
but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. What a verse. That's, that's God's sovereign choice. Listen, the doctrines of grace bring you to humility and you should never forget those. When, you've, when you finally now, by God's grace, have figured out what Ephesians chapter one means, you should be a worshiper. And, and a million other passages in the scriptures that draw your attention to this. What a treasure we have. D, humility treasures the gospel. Colossians chapter three, 12 through 13. So as those who have been chosen by God or of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, there it is, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you. The results of this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that we have is we are forgiven people. Have you ever had a person who won't forgive you? Have you ever dealt with that? They just won't forgive you. And they hold it over you. That's not our God. He's not only forgiven your sins. The Bible says he chooses never to bring them up. We love to bring up sins of our loved ones, don't we? He doesn't bring them up. Are you not humbled at that? Because I know what I did. I can think of sins in my past that were godless and reckless, totally outside of the will of God. I can think of those. Can you? He didn't bring them up. He's forgiven us. So what's he tell us to do? Forgive that way. But people can't. And they harbor hatred. They, they try to justify their positions. In the end, they're miserable. But humility loves God's, God's sovereign choice of us. It, 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 it loves the fact that we're forgiven people. And so humility forgives. It just does. It forgives. Still praying for people that I have had to forgive, but they haven't asked me. And I, I can't wait for the day they come. I'm not going to bring up anything that's done. I'm just going to hug them. Because I'm glad God forgave me so I can forgive them. Lastly, and we've got to quit here. Humility will serve everyone. We read that passage in Philippians 2, but the preceding verses said, do, not, do nothing out of selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look on your own personal interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this attitude, which was in Christ Jesus in yourself as well. Then we went, and he went on and talked about his humility. And so, as we, as we finish this, just look back at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son... For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for everyone, for all. That's, that's humility. And so you may need to, by God's grace, start thinking of a few people that you need to start serving instead of complaining about. Serve them. Serve them. Might be right in your home. Might be right in this church. I hope you're not mad at me. I have to deal with this too. <laughs> Father, thank you for the reminder of this text. There on that dusty road on the way to Jerusalem, you're teaching a lesson to 12 men. One is a traitor and a liar. But 12 men 
who were self-centered. They were arrogant. They couldn't listen. They couldn't see where you were going. And yet you taught them that lesson knowing that in time your spirit would fall upon them and they would understand and they would begin to not only grasp this but live this. That's what the disciples did. They lived this humility they learned from Jesus Christ. And they all died miserable deaths. But they were, they were excited. They were excited to die for you. To live was Christ. To die was gain. They believed that, Lord. Because the humility of the gospel, the humility of Jesus Christ had flooded into their hearts. And so, Lord, make us humble, each and every one of us individually, so that when we come together corporately, what a picture of the body of Christ. Help us in that, Lord. We can't do it on our own. We will fail, Lord. Help us to submit to you. We'll give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.